We are back, and in this hour, we are talking about election season, and joining me is Representative Carl Gillard. Gillard, he is a Georgia State Representative, and he is the chair of the Black Legislative Caucus in Georgia. And there was a recent decision by a U.S. District Judge, his name is Judge Steve Jones, who ruled that Georgia's redrawn maps from 2021 violated Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Uh, After that uh, ruling by the judge, uh, the GOP-controlled state legislature in Georgia was directed to redraw the maps consistent uh, with the judge's determination that the existing maps did violate the Voting Rights Act. And then the redrawn maps, according to Democrats in the state of Georgia, also uh, dilute Black voting power. Now, we know that the judge was uh, asked again to review the redrawn maps, and he has said that he believes that the GOP has complied with his order, and he's prepared to let the map as redrawn by the Republicans stand for the upcoming 2024 election. So, Representative uh, Gilliard, help us understand what is the problem with the redrawn map uh, that the GOP, uh, you know, published after the first ruling from Judge Steve Jones. Well, thank you, um, Attorney Martin, for allowing me to be here. Uh, two years ago, we we went through redistricting, and um, and of course, maps were drawn. Judge Jones uh, looked at the the whole focus, and he said, "I think I see a, an additional two Senate seats in the state, five additional House seats, and one congressional." The population is growing in the Atlanta, Gwinnett County, uh, et cetera. Our problem is that the, the maps were, were were not fairly drawn because a lot of our Democratic white representatives have been coupled. And uh, we have incumbents who've been coupled. Or Lucy McBeth has been moving out of her district, and now she's going to have to run in a whole nother district that used to be her old district. And so it, it has not been fair representation. Um, you know, as we go into this session on Monday, we uh, we know that there's some appeals that are underway, uh, and and our focus right now is that we've got to educate our constituents. So, according to the Democrats and those that plan to file the appeal of uh, Judge Jones's recent order, what would the maps look like if you all had the ability to draw these maps consistent with? the judge's original decision that there had been a violation of the Voting Rights Act, what would the, the new maps look like? Well, the, even in the Senate, those those two Senate uh, seats are not additional. They're, they've kind of been shuffling senators like Senator Donzella James and others around, Senator Michael Red around. So we, w- we want to see fair representation of Black districts, two additional real Senate seats to give us two more Black senators, not three um, House seats that give us three house seats and then we menangle the the boundaries for the other two five real additional seats that are people of color as well as the congressional um it's just been a shifting of territory but not the the pure substance of what judge jones stated five two and one and so it's interesting because judge jones in, in reading some of his statements he says look what I said in my original opinion did not have to be followed to the T by Republicans. And he says, based on his ruling that these Republicans have substantially complied, that they have provided 
uh, districts that provide for more black representation. So in, in some ways, you all in this appeal are challenging the judge's own interpretation of how his decision was implemented. Well, you know, numbers don't lie. Um, the population is growing uh, where Georgia is getting brown. Mm -hmm. And the reality is that, you know, I'm, I'm from Savannah, Georgia, i.e. Chatham County, and we live in Chocolate City. Um, the population has changed the whole um, focus of the elector. Um, so we can't, you know, dance around the reality of a browner Georgia or a blacker Georgia. And we just see it as we see it because we're living it. We see other communities that don't have representation that looks like them. I mean, they drew Congresswoman Marjorie Green in the area where uh, there were even other folk, white white Republicans that didn't want her in there, much less to have black uh, communities have representation from Congresswoman Marjorie Jones. Marjorie Green, I'm sorry. Is Marjorie Green now in a safe Republican district based on this new map? Very much, very much. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the thing is, is that those areas continue to grow. Gwinnett County is growing tremendously. Um, uh, people want to be represented. And then, and then, Attorney Martin, what we're dealing with is we're shuffling that coming into this 2024 election in May, the primary, we got to re-educate people now that their old representative is not the representative again. We just had redistricting two years ago. So it is definitely at this point, we're at the mercy of what the judge has already um, agreed to until that repeal or appeal happens in reality it might they might make the appeal it might take a year two years but right now what's in front of us is to educate and re-educate the people as to what's going on and i'm glad you said that because you said your primary the georgia primary is in may so mm -hmm. there is a short window for the judge if he were to side with those that are filing the appeal he would then have to send it back with with the the Logistics be such that he was send it back to that same GOP legislature to draw yet a third map. I and don't think it'll happen in this time frame of of the uh, session. We have forty days to go into session. Um, most likely, we'll end at the end of March. The primary will be around the second week of May. Um, the, the qualifying is around the second week of March. Mm -hmm. So you're going to get people now that want to get uh, to run for those new positions. They're going to get a chance to have to just about two and a half months to get it together to run. So, so we're stuck. It, Basically, Georgia is stuck with this map for this election cycle. We are. Unfortunately, we are. Mm, just because of the timing of it, even though there will be an appeal filed, uh, that takes time. And then even if you win the appeal, you still have to have the map redrawn by somebody, whether it's the legislature or some independent body. So again, none of that would happen before these May primaries. But what does this mean for uh, some, you know, any, like a Lucy Macbeth, who, African American woman, uh, who now has to go back to a district that she used to represent uh, because of redistricting two years had to move. Is she going to be going back to a safe district? I, I think she will. Um, she uh, will probably, she, she's going back to much of her old district. Um, and that's going to be a plus. But going back again, we have to educate those people that now she is coming back to that area. Uh, just today, we had a, a news release from one of our representatives, Doug Stoner, who has been coupled, who decided not to run against another Democrat. Um, um, and so just so everybody understands, when you say coupled, you literally mean a, a Democrat incumbent 
is, is say in a particular district and then the way they've drawn the maps, it puts another Democrat into that person's district. And now you would have two Democrats going head to head. That's right. And, and the unfairities of it is it's confusing because people side with their representation or people that they really like or they've gotten used to. And now you're confusing them. When you mm-hmm. confuse them, they get kind of discombobulated that, man, I don't even want to go to the polls. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know that the Georgia Legislative Black Caucus represents over three million constituents. We've got a mighty work to do to educate those three million plus voters as to what's going on. Mm-hmm. So under this new map, you said potentially you will pick up three new black members of Congress. We would pick up the the, the whole premise is five um, state house seats um, that that the judges um, put in his order. One additional congressional seat, which will be in the Atlanta, more so the cab area because the population has grown and two state Senate seats. Okay. Um, we're um, we're probably about 12 away or so from a majority house. Um, so I was going to uh, say, if you win those five new seats, where will that put the party in terms of the Democrats versus Republicans in your state legislature? Well, we're closer. We're closer. Um, it, it, the math, if we look at it, we probably need an additional nine to 12 um, mm-hmm. um, seats, but we're a lot closer than we were. And and now the, the pattern of Trinity Martin is getting where we're moving toward a brown or black of Georgia. It's just going to happen. So mm-hmm. if it doesn't happen in this in this um, session, we'll have an opportunity in the next two years to make it a bigger reality. So you think this year, like I said, we have to, you're stuck with this map. You'll pick up five seats in your state legislature, but you think in the next two years, you could close that gap and maybe uh, there is a a slight majority of Dems in the Georgia state legislature? Well, strategy is going to be everything. I'll give big kudos to my my former leader, leader, Stacey Abrams. She had a strategic focus when she was leader. She was doing town hall meetings all over the state. She was meeting people where they're at, educating them. And then she says something very um, facetious to some. She said, they said, well, how are you going to win this governor's race? She said, I'm going to register 250,000 people. And they said, oh, all right. Well, she did that plus. So mm-hmm. the you know, reality of it is, is that we've got to get our Democratic Party of Georgia. Um, we already have united the ACLU, the NWCP, the, um, the, the Black um, Chambers, uh, the Urban League, um, as well as the ACL. I mean, you know, everybody coming together on one plate. On, with the same agenda going toward the same um, ending and ending right now is that people want to be represented. If we're over 30 percent of Georgia, it should look like us. We delivered two senators uh, t- from the state of Georgia. We delivered the presidency to a degree from Georgia. And the nation is looking at Georgia. As you said, we're going to play a big role, but we've got to have a plan. Yeah, let's talk about that, because, you know, this is going to be a contentious, contentious Presidential election has already started, you know, with the forced resignation of Harvard's first black female president, Claudine Gay, uh, the attacks that we've seen today on, uh, you know, black women, black academicians. There's this notion that, you know, go woke, go broke. We are witnessing what we can expect to hear and to see throughout this year. Uh, how confident are you that with all of the attacks that are going to be made against Joe Biden, Kamala Harris and the Democratic Party, that Georgia is still going to deliver for the presidency uh, a Democratic win? If I can send an email or download to every uh, one in leadership in the Democratic Party of Georgia, we got to get the right message. The Republicans have a message. They're talking about 
the, the gas prices. They're talking about food. They're talking about all the parables. Now they're talking about in Georgia, we got a crime problem. We got to do wraparound services. All of our messages they're talking about. And so the Democratic Party of Georgia and all of us that are Democrats, we got to have the right messaging. We're leaving out people and okay, we're not. Let me stop you, stop you, Representative. We hear that a lot about Democrats, that we, we're always wrong on the messaging. What is the message uh, you think is going to resonate with folks in Georgia and particularly those apathetic voters, those voters that said, I went out to the polls the last election. You guys told me to, to come out. I was going to get my student loans, uh, you know, wiped out or, you know, I was going to uh, see uh, increased benefits in my paycheck. And that didn't happen. What what is the message for those voters in Georgia? We have the, the minimum wage is five dollars and 15 cents. We say that we're the number oh one place in Georgia to do business in the country to do business, but we're not doing business with the people. The people are saying, I'm working two and three jobs and I can't even pay attention. We're talking about housing. We've got to talk about those issues and meet the people where they're at. The Georgia Legislative Black Caucus, we went on a For the People tour. We took the message to the people. We shut up and listened to our college students. We did the Black College tour. We, we got quiet and listened to our leaders. We went to the Black farmers. So when we go to those areas and we're, we're shutting up long enough to listen to the people, then we have to put together our legislation that emulates that not only in the state, but in the local municipalities. Um, um, I did a bill, the Georgia citizen arrest law um, that was repealed when Ahmaud Arbery was killed. And mm -hmm. one of the things that they kept saying, is, oh, man, you're not going to get this to happen. You're a Democrat. Well, we just kept continuing the message. The message is this is outdated and antiquated. And that and Ahmaud Arbery was killed. You cannot use the citizen arrest law. We we got it. Uh, we filed it. Then the governor filed his and we came together and we repealed that law. We've seen since George Floyd's murder, since some of those other high profile murders that you just identified, this backlash, you know, folks saying, you know, we've seen enough of black folks. They have too much. Uh, you know, there's not a race problem. There isn't systemic racism. In fact, we need to do away uh, with diversity, equity, and inclusion programs at public universities and private companies. How are you fighting against that message since you said Democrats have a messaging issue? We went, when we did the Black University tour to our, our colleges all over Georgia, we went to the Board of Regents and we met with the, the chairman, the, uh, the Board of Regents chairs, the former governors, Sonny Perdue. We also brought him in front of the Georgia Legislative Black Caucus to say the formula is broken. We recognize what, what the issue is, we're giving more money to, to those universities instead of black universities. Mr. Purdue, we're extending our hand. We're going to introduce legislation in this session, but we're going to need your help to move it to committee, to the floor, to rules, to get it passed. We're, we're reaching out to say we're proposing the legislation, but we need your participation. I'm, I say this, you know, wholeheartedly. If we don't get the message of the people, and I mean this, in 2024 from Biden to the current pre to the former president, we're going to see a repeat. And it's going to be our fault. It's going to be we that are leaders, legislators, elected officials. We did not meet the people where they were at. Wow. Is that breaking through? I mean, that's a powerful word. <laughs> uh, I'm just wondering, you know, how well received is it being? And are you seeing people take action going beyond those words and getting in the streets and talking to folks and getting on the phones and, and really reaching out in the way that you are describing? That's our message. When I took the mantle of leadership, uh, I'm just one of 74 brilliant state representatives and senators. <laughs> but I said to them, if you're going to have a title, it can't be idle. Um, right. we, we, it's a difference in saying that we want to be at the table, but we got to be able to get 
people, um, we had to go to their table. So we've been traveling, we've been listening, and now our focus is legislation and 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 um, we got to get into those communities. We left out the 17 and a half to 25 year olds. Uh, we left them totally out. Um, and, and until we get to those audiences and hear them and do something, I mean, for everyone that's an elected official, you have the power of the pen. You can write budgets, you can repeal budgets, you can write laws. And if you don't lobby those laws, they won't become reality. Right. And so what attorney Martin, what people are doing, they're going into these sessions and they said, I stood against the budget, against the governor. And people don't want to hear that. They want to know, did you help my conditions? Did, did mm-hmm. my, did, can I, can I pay my rent? Can I pay my mortgage? Can I afford to, to live? They don't want to hear yeah. what you stood up against. They want to see you legislate. Right. No, such a powerful message. Thank you so much, Representative Gilliard. Uh, I hope that your fellow, uh, you know, off, uh, folks in the office, elected officials hear your message. I hope that the White House hears this message. We got work to do. We got to roll up our sleeves. Yeah. And if we lose this election, like you said, it's going to be our fault. Again, thank you. Uh, we're counting thank on you. Georgia. We're going to be looking at Georgia because uh, we need you guys. Again, thank you so thank much you. for the work you're doing. When we come forward, Professor uh, Alan Jenkins is here to talk about his graphic novel on the January 6th insurrection. Stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. We are back. And Alan Jenkins, who is a professor of practice at Harvard Law School, is joining me. He is the co-author of a new book called One Six. The graphic novel and this new book is out tomorrow on Amazon and 16comicstore.com. Thank you so much, Professor Jenkins, for joining me on the eve of the release of your new book. Uh, lots of news today about January 6th. Not necessarily the news I think you're writing about in this book. Uh, so tell us the impetus for your book and why Today, is a book like this so important? Well, first, thank you so much for having me on. You know, the the short answer is I love comic books and I love democracy. And I felt like a comic book could be part of the solution to the threats to our democracy. The slightly longer answer is after January 6, 2021, the failed insurrection, I, I found myself waking up at four o'clock in the morning night after night, worrying about the state of our democracy, recognizing that all the things that led to that insurrection, the uh, the authoritarianism and the, the lies and the disinformation and the anti-Semitism and white supremacy that fueled a lot of that insurrection were still with us and in some ways were getting even stronger. And at the same time, you heard almost immediately uh, Trump and his supporters trying to reinvent history to try to tell us that it wasn't serious or it wasn't, uh, you know, a, a violent uh, attack and lots of other lies that I won't repeat here. Uh, we were already as a nation trying to move on when the threats were still there. And so, you know, I really struggled for uh, ideas about how I could sound the alarm bells. I figured, you know, I could write a law review article and that would be read by, you know, tens of of scholars and law students. Uh, But I've always loved comic books and I've always seen comic books as a way to reach people who care about our values as a nation, who care about democracy and equality, but maybe don't have time to read the 800 page, you know, House Select Committee report on the insurrection. 
and could be reached through popular culture. And so far, that's that's proving to be the case. Well, so interesting that your book is coming out tomorrow because uh, a Washington Post University of Maryland poll was published today. And that poll says that three years after the January 6th attack, Republicans are more sympathetic to those who stormed the Capitol and more likely to absolve Donald, Donald Trump of responsibility for the attack than they were in 2021. Now, that's happening at the same time that we know uh, Special Counsel Jack Smith is trying to prosecute in a federal court Donald Trump for his role uh, in the insurrection. Uh, but now Republicans, they're showing an increased loyalty to the former president as, as he's campaigning for re-election and fighting these charges. And even to the point that uh, these some of the majority of GOP voters are less likely to believe that the January 6th, and I, they use the word in this article, this is Washington Post article, participants were mostly violent and less likely to believe that Trump bears responsibility for the attack and are slightly less likely to view Joe Biden's election as legitimate. And again, this is all compared to December uh, December 2021 uh, survey. So at a time when you were trying to sound the alarm bell, Republicans are saying, ah, those guys weren't insurrectionists. They were participants, like they were, you know, going to a conference or something. Not like they were smashing uh, the windows of our Capitol trying to disrupt the peaceful transfer of power. So that's the narrative that we are fighting. Uh, and how does a comic book break through that narrative, which apparently has become even more entrenched for Republican voters? Right. Well, first of all, it's not that surprising, the poll numbers, because, you know, we all watched in horror, almost all of us, uh, Republican, Democrat and Independent, watched in horror while the insurrection was going on, the attack on the Capitol, the uh, fake elector scheme that was uncovered soon after uh, the strong arming of officials. But for those Americans who live in a right wing media bubble, who are only hearing uh, from conservative pundits and former President Trump himself, it's not surprising that they're falling prey to this revisionist history. Because even from the beginning, from the moments after this terrible attack on our democracy, you began immediately to hear uh, the revisions, the the lies about what did it, it did and did not happen. But to answer your question, Ariva, why a comic book? I, you know, there's a long history of comic books being used in support of democracy and equal justice. Uh, there was a very important comic book in the late 50s about Martin Luther King Jr. and the Montgomery bus boycott that was used by people, activists around the world. Uh, the first issue of Captain America had Captain America socking Adolf Hitler in the jaw. Uh, this was nine months before the U.S. entered World War II. But Captain America was created by young Jewish Americans who had family in Europe who were uh, victims of or uh, being persecuted in the Holocaust. And they knew it was important to tell the story of who the real vic uh, villains were and who the real heroes were. So there's a long history of that. But one more thing that I think is important, comic books in particular, and lots of types of popular culture have the power to cut across ideology and, and partisanship. 
uh, and the shields that we put up that prevent us from hearing from our fellow Americans and trying to understand them. When you tell a good story, and it has to be good, and I hope this comic book is a good one, you can begin to pierce some of that and people will get caught up in a story. Uh, their empathy goes up and their cynicism goes down. And that's one of the main reasons why my co-writer, Gan Golan, and I chose a comic book as the medium to tell this story. It's so interesting. So obviously your book is about this, you know, the, the uh, chilling reality of how close we came to authoritarian rule uh, and the threats to democracy that we still face. But when you hear people talk about this upcoming election, you don't hear them talking about that. You hear them saying things like Joe Biden is too old. Uh, Kamala Harris doesn't do enough. Uh, you know, I didn't get my student loans totally wiped out. You know, complaints like that. And, and almost like there's a total, you know, non-recognition to the threat to democracy. And as if Donald Trump is going to rule, because he says, you know, he's going to be a dictator, at least on the first day, that, that he's going to be focused on any of these things that matter to people. So we come forward, I want to talk about how do we get people to, your book obviously is one way to do that, but even for those folks who are not going to read your book, although I hope tons of people do, we know tons of people don't watch the news, we know tons of people check out in terms of politics, but this is and could be one of the most critical elections of our lifetime. But yet this concept of democracy and authoritarian authoritarian rule, I don't think it's resonating with a lot of voters in a way that's going to compel them to go to the, you know, go to the, the voting box in a way that we need them to. Talk about what is it going to take when we come forward right here on KBLA Talk 1580. We are back and I'm talking with Alan Jenkins. He is a professor at Harvard Law School and he is the co-author of a comic book about January 6th. It's called One Six, the graphic novel. It comes out tomorrow online. You can uh, download it. It's a series, right, uh, Professor Jenkins? It's a series of four books. So are all four being released at the same time? Uh, so, yes, it is a series of four. And uh, issue one came out about a year ago on January 6th of 2023. Uh, issue two, as you noted, is coming out tomorrow and uh, both in print and digitally. So you can get it on Amazon. You can get it at uh, 16comicstore.com and on Kindle. Uh, and issues three and four are going to be coming out over the summer and fall. So the, the fourth issue, fourth and final issue will be out before Election Day 2024, which is now less than a year away. And do you need to read one before you read two that comes out tomorrow? Is it a continuous story? Will you be lost if you haven't read the first uh, ser first book in the series? No, I mean, we want everybody to read all of them, of course, but uh, whereas issue one was set about nine months after a successful insurrection, right? So the comic book's premise is, what if the insurrection had been successful? Issue two goes back to the actual events that led up to the insurrection. So if you pick up issue two, which comes out tomorrow, you're going to meet our characters for the first time. You're going to see some of the real events as well as some of the fictional, the fictional events in our story. And we're clear 
about what is real and what is fictional, and you will not be lost. But we hope you'll then go back and, and also get issue number one. Yeah, and I know I'm just reading some of the interviews that you've done and some of the commentary. You know, you've said it in this interview. Your hope is that a comic book reaches those people who are not tuned in nightly to cable news, who are not perusing the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Boston Globe, you know, the five million papers, people like you and, and uh, you know, I read every day. Uh, how do how do how is it being marketed so that it is going to reach that population, uh, particularly young voters? Uh, my guest uh, from Georgia, the state rep, said, "Look, seventeen to twenty-five year olds are being lost. We're not listening to them. We're not talking to them. How do we get this book into their hands?" Right. So, number one, it's a comic book. So, I think that immediately increases the likelihood that young folks and people who don't always have their you know their head in the uh, the newspaper are going to read it, but we have been sending thousands of copies, free copies, to libraries, to uh, universities, to schools that request them. We've sent copies to all the election deniers in Congress, the people who voted not to certify uh, Joe Biden's successful election, and some of the democracy uh, defenders. We've made free copies available to youth organizations and social justice organizations and voting groups. So we're really working to get it out there. And then, you know, interviews like this uh, are part of how we get the word out that there is a way to access this story that will be fun and entertaining, but also you'll learn some things that perhaps you didn't know. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned those election deniers because uh, there was some thinking right after January 6th that those election deniers, that their political careers would be over. But contrary to that, many of them have been reelected and many of them will be on the ballot in 2024. People who to this day will not state from their lips that Joe Biden is the duly elected legitimate president of the United States. People who continue the big lie uh, that Donald Trump has disseminated and perpetrated uh, perpetuated that, you know, he won the election. Uh, you know, how scary is that? Well, it's, it's terrifying. I mean, over 150 <laughs> election deniers were either elected or re-elected re in 2022. Uh, and that's just in the U.S. Congress and around the country, lots more. Some of those people are actually responsible for administering elections. It's also the case that a lot of people, good folks in you know both parties who were uh, state and local election workers, have been harassed out of their jobs simply right. for upholding the truth. But, you know, there's a lot that we can do. Uh, you know, you asked before the break, you know, how can we break through to people who, you know, don't want to hear the truth? Part of that is about values and empathy, talking about the importance of our democracy, of truth, of upholding the right to vote, and that that vote needs to count. Part of it is understanding people who we don't agree with. I tell my students uh, at law school, no one ever persuaded another person of something without first understanding that person and their point of view. And if we can't understand others, including people we might radically disagree with, we're not going to be able to convince them of anything. So, you know, that's all very important. We also need good folks to you know, be election watchers and election workers, to vote their values of democracy. 
uh, to recognize that democracy is really the most important thing we have in our country, because without it, we can't uphold any of the other civil or human rights or uh, economic security questions or anything else we care about without that vote, vote and that voice. You know, it's kind of interesting. Uh, your book obviously uh, is, is you know, ringing the alarm and, and you know, uh, letting people know in no uncertain terms how critical this election is and, and how close we came to having, you know, an overthrow of our peaceful transfer of power process. But one of the things the Republicans have done, Professor Jenkins, is they've turned that narrative on its head and they talk about Joe Biden as being the authoritarian, you know, president. And that if Joe Biden is reelected, he will, uh, you know, usher in this era or continue this era of authoritarianism. So how do we, you know, cause people to understand that that is pure gaslighting and that Joe Biden has done nothing to undermine our democracy, you know, even when the Supreme Court has ruled against him in cases like the uh, student loans, he has followed the rule of law and that he has conducted himself in a way that you would expect a president of the United States to do so. But it is Donald Trump who has refused to say that he wouldn't be a dictator in you know some recent interview he gave to Fox News. So but that narrative is being turned on his head by Republicans. Well, this is right out of the authoritarian playbook, right? It's, it's call <laughs> your opponents the things that you are. Uh, say about them the things that you know you're about to do before they can say it about you. This is something that you know would-be dictators around the world use as a tactic. And you know, so number one is we have to recognize it and call it out for what it is. But you know, to really answer your question, we need to invest the time to sit with our neighbors, with our friends, to talk about those shared values, to talk about legitimate concerns, right? People who are afraid of losing their jobs or that their kids are not gonna be as well off as they are, or uh, about a society that's changing quickly, or about the fact that it's hard to know. Well, let me, let me who, stop who you there, Professor Dinkins. Yeah. What is that conversation like talking to a white person that is concerned that black and brown people, the browning of this country, and that somehow when this country becomes majority minority, that that means that the pie has shrunk or that, you know, they get less of the pie because that's a lot of the fear that, you know, people are, when they're honest, will express. What, what's that conversation like when someone is, is honest about that fear? Well, part of it is about solutions, right? Acknowledging the legitimate fears, not, not racism, not uh, you know, Islamophobia or transphobia or, or uh, anti-Semitism, but acknowledging the concerns about the the discomfort, right? The change, the uh, you know, the uh, economic threats that lots of people are facing, and then talking about how we can pursue and solve those problems together. That's you know what we saw. Barack Obama do. That's how he became the first black uh, president in United States history, right? Is that, you know, hope, change, and solutions. And that's well, real. some people would say, you see what that got us. <laughs> that was, uh, <laughs> you know, I don't know how well that worked out for us. Even Obama says maybe the country wasn't ready for him. Maybe it was taking the country too far too fast. And I hear what you're saying, but, but what is the solution? If we become a, we are becoming, particularly states like where I live in California, a majority 
minority state. That That is a reality that is happening. I don't know the solution for the white person that's going to feel displaced by that. Uh, you know, it doesn't mean automatically that they lose their job, their house or anything of that nature. But if there is a sense of hierarchical loss, like I've been the, you know, the majority and now I'm not, the reality is, well, you're kind of not going to be. So help us with that solution. Well, you know, part of that, as as you know, is that the white supremacist narrative has always been, uh, you know, a message to poor white folks that, you know, no matter how low you, you are in the hierarchy, you're always going to be better than those people of color. And I think we need to show everyone, not just white folks, that we can rise together, that we're all in it together in creating an economy, a democracy that works for everyone. And, you know, I would argue that, you know, our current political leadership, uh, including, uh, you know, the Biden administration, have not done a good job of telling that story. Uh, you know, it's it's up to them, but it's also up to all of us. We, you know, we've been in situations that, you know, in which the majority group uh, was no longer the the dominant group. You know, Hawaii has been a majority people of color state for a long time, and you don't see any race riots in Hawaii. Uh, California is has been very diverse for a long time. It's not to say there haven't been growing pains, but uh, you know, there has been a, a coming together to solve tough problems when necessary. So we can do this. There's no question that we can do it. Well, we are out of time. And I, I, I disagree with you vehemently about that statement about the Biden administration not telling that story. So I got to have you back so we can have that conversation. But I want to make sure folks get your book tomorrow. It's called One yes. Sixth, the graphic novel. It's by Professor Alan Jenkins. Uh, make sure you check it out. Thank you so much. I'm going to have you back. We're going to have that conversation about how well the Biden administration or not so well have been telling that story about us all rising together. Uh, next voice that you hear will be Robin Ayers and the Raw Report right here on KBLA Talk 1580.